Good morning. Today's reading is from Psalms 1 through 6. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the east of in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he's fr- he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the, congrega- in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this this morning where your mercies are new today as every day, where you, Lord Jesus, are on your throne. Your kingdom is a good kingdom for those whom you have declared righteous by your shed blood. We thank you, God, that you are interceding for us even now by name. We thank you that our hope, our happiness is not in the things of the world, even though there are so many good things in this world, but our hope for ultimate happiness is found in you and in your word and in the hope and peace that comes from a relationship with you. So God, we thank you for your word, your holy word. I pray that you would accomplish the work that you set out to accomplish this morning through the proclamation and the teaching of Psalm 1. May you be honored and glorified. May we be edified. May you uh, transform us this morning from one degree of glory to another. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. God's people said, amen. Well, good morning again. We are uh, starting off an eight-week sermon series in Psalms. We're calling it Eight Weeks in Psalms, and we've titled it The Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. And uh, eight weeks, I trust you'll be, I trust you'll be encouraged by it. Um, we're going to have several different guys preaching through it, and um, and we're it's kind of a random uh, buffet of psalms. We're gonna we're gonna touch on. There's five books in the book of Psalms. We're gonna we're gonna do at least one psalm from all five books. There's three literary genres in psalms that I'm going to talk about a little bit later, and we're gonna give you a sampling of those as well. Uh, psalms of praise, psalms of lament, and psalms of thanksgiving. So. My prayer is that that you um, that through this sermon series starting today that your hunger and desire for God's word would would increase exponentially that you would uh, be so desiring of it that you would uh, spend time in it time in it and that you'd meditate on it um, day and night. You know, as I get um, as I get older, I'm more conscious than ever that in in agreement with Paul in chapter four of Second Corinthians that the outer man is decaying. Uh, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. And um, you know, no matter uh, how old you are, um, at some degree, probably north of 30 for sure, you understand the reality that the outer man is the king. You've got new aches and pains. You wake up and go, wow, that didn't hurt yesterday. Why does it, why does it hurt today? In order to delay the inevitable decay of the human body, it's not, it's not enough just to cut things out. Cut sugar out, cut caffeine, alcohol out, whatever it is that you want to cut out. We need to add in the discipline of 
exercise and better foods and better sleep. We can't just take things out of our life. We need to add things in. There's a recipe for health, if you will. Besides staying away from things that will kill you and adding in disciplines that will help you, there's a third and maybe, well, not maybe, and definitely more important component. And we call that God's providence. That we can, we can live a healthy lifestyle. We can do all the right things, and God in his providence might determine to sicken us or take us home. On the other side of the coin, you can live a life that is completely slothful and uh, you eat nothing healthy, and the Lord might prosper you. He might give you a long, uh, healthy life. So God's providence is important. He can keep unhealthy people alive, and he can cause death on someone who is a picture of health. The goal for the believer is to do our part and trust God with the rest. That's all we can do, as far as it depends upon you to live that type of life. Today's psalm instructs God's children towards a path of happiness, a happy life, if you will. Did you know that it's okay to be had that God wants you to be happy? I think it's John Piper that's, that calls himself a Christian hedonist. But it's not happiness in the things that the world offers, but it's happiness in what God offers and what God says. So today we're going to see the psalmist instruct God's children towards a path of happiness. And the seeds of happiness started when God providentially uprooted you from your old withering life and replanted you by streams of living water. Our happiness and contentment increase when we drink from the living water of God's Word. And when we drink from the living water of God's Word, we have an increasing desire for more that results, upon, uh, results uh, in our lives, in our minds and hearts, thinking and meditating about His Word day and night. Psalm 1 gives no commands. There's no imperatives in Psalm 1. In fact, there's very few imperatives in any of the Psalms. But instead, Psalm 1 point, uh, paints two pictures and lets us look at these two pictures side by side so that we can see the wide, wise choice for living and the foolish choice. The way of righteousness and the way of the wicked. If you will, I want you to, to think this morning of a before and after picture. Um, I, 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 by the way, I do not enjoy seeing your before and after pictures on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to do that, like just unfriend me and then go ahead and post it. Special, yeah. Uh, but but, but we, we all have before and after pictures. We have the, the before picture of who we were in Christ, and we have the after picture of who we are now in Christ. And many of us, um, even though the, the reality is, is that this picture is a true picture of, the, of uh, who we are in Christ, we go back and we live like this old picture looked like. And that is a recipe for uh, misery rather than contentment and happiness. So, so we have two pictures, the, the picture of our old man, the picture of our new man, and we want to actually uh, live and walk inside the picture of the new man. And my prayer is that, the, that this, um, this preaching of the psalm would do that for you today, to remind you of who you are and to walk in that. The book of Psalms was written over a 900-year period of time by at least seven authors. David wrote 73 of the psalms. The son of, sons of Korah wrote 11 Asaph 12, Solomon 2, Moses 1, the other 50 or so have unknown, uh, unnamed uh, authors. The book of Psalms is the largest book in the Old Testament, and it's quoted to or alluded to in the New Testament more than any other book in the Bible. Some 560 times the Psalms are alluded to um, in the New Testament. 
There's no progressive structure of the Psalms like the other books. We would never think about preaching 2 Corinthians by starting in chapter 12 and then going to chapter 6 and then 1 then back up to chapter 11. But the Psalms, you can do that because there's no particular order. They're ordered in five books, um, and, they're, and a few of them do uh, uh, work off the other, but there's really no, uh, no particular order. The editors divided and organized this Psalter into five books, as you might notice as you look at your chapter headings in your Bible. Um, chapter 1 is the is first book, 42 seconds, 73 third, 90 starts the fourth book, and 107 starts the fifth book. The five books are, in t- are, are intended to remind the reader of the five books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Like the Pentateuch, the Psalter is to be read and heard as God's instruction for God's people. God's instruction for God's people. The Psalms are for God's people. Uh, the Psalms are for Christians, if you will. It's a Christian book. Each of the five books concludes with a doxology. Chapter, the book one ends with uh, chapter 41, verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. There's a, there's a theme here you're going to see. The end of book two, chapter 72, 18 through 19. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Book three ends in 8952. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Um, Book four ends in 10648. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. And finally, in 156, book five ends. Let Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So to say, blessed be the name of the Lord means to praise the Lord. So we have titled this sermon series, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. There's three literary forms. Uh, if, you, if you do an in-depth study of the Psalms, you read some commentaries, there's, there's as many as ten literary forms. But, but really they can all be um, capsulized into three different literary forms. It's uh, their praise psalms, their um, lament psalms, and they are thanksgiving psalms. And the scholar Walter Brueggemann suggests that we can, that he has a different name for these praise, lament, and thanksgiving. And he says that we can find ourselves in one of three places. A place of orientation. When everything is going good, when everything makes sense in our lives, these are the psalms of praise. They're, they're psalms of orientation. There's 25 of psalms in that category. Psalms of orientation or praise. The next would be a, a psalms of, of disorientation. This is a place where we find ourselves when we have sunk into a pit. It's a place where we are lamenting, where we cry out to God to help us um, individually or help us in community together. When we're in distress, sickness, unjust accusations, famine, exile, and defeat. And psalms are the most com- excuse me, laments are the most common par- uh, type of psalm. There's 60 of them. What does that tell you about life in this world? And many of those were written by David, a man after God's own heart. And then the the third type of psalm are the psalms of reorientation. After we've, it's like cold water on the face. It's it's after we've been disoriented and um, in in the pit, in the middle of trials, and we're crying out to God, and then as we see Um, God in his word and he meets us through his spirit and through the community we get reorientated 
in our cries of lament turn to uh, cries of thanksgiving because God has delivered us from the trial. Or maybe he hasn't delivered us and he's just met us and he's comforted us. The, the thing that the Psalms do best is express a full range of feelings and reflections of the believing soul. I, I read somewhere that somebody, uh, somebody said that the Psalms give us words that we don't have when we're feeling, when we're in a place of orientation or praise or when we're in a place of disorientation or lament or we're in a place of reorientation and thanksgiving, that the Psalms give us words to what we're actually feeling. John Calvin said this about that point, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. There is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that, can not, that is not here represented as in a mirror. He's talking about the Psalms. Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is placed as the first psalm as it emphasizes the importance and sets a trajectory for delighting in and meditating upon all of God's Word, which includes the Psalms. Psalm 1 emphasizes what all of Scripture teaches, that there are only two types of people in the world. Only two types, the righteous and the wicked. The righteous who are right with God and the wicked who are not right with God. And what ultimately differentiates the righteous from the wicked is not behavior, as much as we'd like to think. It's not lifestyle, as much as um, some lifestyles um, re uh, repel us. Or even church attendance doesn't distinguish the righteous from the wickedness. What distinguishes the righteous from the wicked is the grace and kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who uprooted us from death and replanted us in eternal life. Additionally, Psalm 1 and the entire Psalter, for that matter, uh, presents the righteous with a choice between two ways to live. We can choose to live a happy life or a miserable life. Today's psalm holds up two pictures, and let's just look at them side by side so we can choose between walking in the happy Christian life or sitting in the old miserable life. We have two choices. The psalmist's goal is to convince God's people to walk in blessed righteousness by delighting in the teaching of the Word of God. Christians all too often live miserable, unhappy lives because we're sitting in and trusting in the counsel and systems of the world rather than walking in and trusting in the truth of Scripture. Misery comes from walking in and listening to and um, joining in the counsel of the world rather than abiding in the truth of Scripture. So my prayer this morning is that the Spirit of God through the Word of God would give you and me a growing desire to find crazy, unexplainable, otherworldly happiness. It's available in spite of circumstances by trusting God's Word rather than trusting in the wisdom of the world. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, verse 1, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. To be blessed is to be happy. God wants you to be happy in Jesus. Happy is the man, it starts off with. Who's the man? Who's the woman? Happy is the woman. 
We see it down in verses 5 and 6. It's the righteous person. Happy is the righteous person. The one who by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone has been washed clean and forgiven of all of our sins. The psalmist clearly wants the righteous to be happy. So our assumption could be that, that we're, that we're going to struggle with happiness, or he wouldn't write this, or that we'd be looking for happiness in all the wrong places. This isn't a psalm about creating a checklist. I want to say that up front. It's not about doing better and being better. It's not about a list of rules or activities so that we can be happy. It's a call for God's redeemed to stand and thrive where we've been planted and not to stand in the hole that we were uprooted from. Out of the gates, the psalmist teaches the righteous to be happy by what to cut out and what to increase, what to eat and what not to eat. The happy, righteous person, he says in the end of verse 1, uh, doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the counsel of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. There is a, there's a progression here. Walk, stand, sit. Um, this is how friendship with the world works. We progress from a casual acquaintance with the world to a settled agreement with the world. The progression looks like this. We listen to worldly counsel. We, we start listening to it. And sometimes that worldly counsel is cloaked in Christian lingo. Next, we, we, we stand in it. We heed and start to act on that counsel. And then we sit in it. We, we start to identify with the counsel. We become so saturated with it, we start to conform to the ways of the world. We've seen this. We, had, we met with a couple last night that they, they've seen that in, um, in somebody they dearly love. Where you, you start listening to the counsel. You start identifying with the counsel. Then you start believe, belonging to the people that counseled you. We recognize this when we align with different groups as strongly or strongly as we um, relate with the church, with Christians, align with Christians. The world, make no mistake about it, always promises a better life. That's the, that's the biggest lie of the world. Just do this and do that, and you'll be happy. I've seen this in politics, and I've seen this in marriage counseling. Who doesn't want to be happy? We pursue things. We pursue um, new pastures, if you will, because somebody has given us a promise of being happy rather than what does God's Word say about being happy. Following this path, the path of happiness that the world promises will always lead to misery, misery for the righteous. Maybe not today, maybe not next week, maybe not next month, but it will always come up empty. Some have used this psalm as a proof text that Christians should avoid contact, contact and friendship with unbelievers. This is a, that's a lie, and it's unbiblical. We're called to be in the world. With sinners, with the wicked. We're called to be in the world, but what? Not of the world. We see that all throughout Scripture. We're to be with unbelievers, but we're to choose, or we're not to choose or affirm their way of life. And their way of life centers on self instead of God. So the psalmist teaches us not to delight in the ways of the world, but in the law of the in the law of the Lord. You know who else lived in the world 
dwelt with sinners, but delighted in the law of the Lord? Jesus. All throughout the, New, all throughout the Gospels. Read them. Read the first two chapters of Mark. It says that he came to teach the word. He did everything that the Father commanded. He obeyed the Father, everything the Father asked. And he ate with sinners and tax collectors. He met the woman at the well that was an adulterous woman, and he engaged her. He hung out with prostitutes. But he delighted in the law of the Lord. So it's not a call to separate ourselves from sinners, but to be set apart in what we delight in. Verse 2, the happy, righteous man delights or desires. That's what delights means, to desire the law of the Lord, the Torah. The Torah certainly was the first five books of the Bible, but more importantly for us here today, it's the teaching and instruction of the Word that we see in all 66 books of the Bible. The key to a happy, contented life is delighting in God's Word and meditating or thinking upon it day and night. As I said, delight means to desire, and when we desire something, we tend to meditate or think about it day and night. The first step to delight is, what, what might that be? It's to become familiar with something. We don't desire something that we're not familiar with. Read about it. Taste it. Test drive it. Walk on it. Live in it. Taste. Delight, desire, meditate. On my birthday a few years back, Nancy um, made a big pig's butt. Um, on the grill. <laughs> the meat just fell off the bone. She'd never made that before. She's made it, I think, once or twice since then. And, um, and I remember like the, the, the next time that she was going to make it, like I, 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 had, I had tasted it. And then when I knew we were going to have it again, I was like, I was desiring it. And all I could think about was that pig's butt on the grill. Kind of weird. But that's how it works with God's Word. You can't, you can't have an increasing desire for something unless you've tasted it. And if, you haven't, if, if you're not desiring it today, it's because you haven't, you haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So you need, to, you need to taste so that you increase desire so that you think upon it. And that's what the psalmist is telling us. He said that's the recipe for happiness. The more time you spend in God's Word, the more you'll delight in it, the more you'll find yourself meditating upon it. And here's, uh, just hold off a sec here. Like, some of you are probably Googling right now one-year reading plans in the Bible. And you haven't picked up, you haven't picked up the, the Bible in a couple of weeks. You've got the, the most popular version of God's Word. Remember I told you last week, the DST, the Dusty Standard Bible. So the first thing we need to do is dust off, just dust the Bible off. Um, you don't need to like have an aggressive plan to like you know go out and, and hit it hard. You don't need to like memorize Psalm one between now and next Sunday. Here's where it starts. It starts with a belief that happiness is found by a scripture saturated life that conforms us, not a life that is conformed by the by the world. There is discipline involved. There's discipline that leads to delighting, that leads to meditating. Psalm 34 tells us, uh, tells the righteous to taste and see that the Lord is good. How do we taste and see? The same way you do anything else that is good or worthwhile. You take a few steps in the right direction. Um, 
If you have a goal up to run a marathon and you haven't been off the couch in two months, you don't make that goal a year out. Um, start by walking from the couch to the fridge. Not the fridge. Go around the block. It's the same with Scripture. Start small. Let me give you, um, and, and I know, like, I struggle in this area at times, particularly when I'm not preaching. And I find myself um, a bit aggravated, a little bit discontent. Um, I find myself, um, you know, like seeking happiness in the world. I go like, I, I forget what it tastes like, so I've got to renew my taste on a daily basis. And a place to start is maybe just the Psalms up there. Um, th- these are the next eight weeks of Psalms that we're going to be preaching. And we'll post this in the newsletter, but for for next week, for example, um, just read Psalm 8. Read Psalm 8 daily. And, um, and ask the Lord to give you an increasing desire for His Word. And then think about it. Think about it throughout the day. Another way to do it is, um, this, this book is in the library. It's, it's, the, it's the best little process I know of for getting um, creating a desire for God's Word. It's called one-to-one Bible reading. We'll be talking about this more in the men's breakfast, um, not in August, but September and October, because we, we really desire to see men and women to get together on, a, on some kind of regular basis and engaging in God's Word. Um, this is also just great for your families, for husband and wife, or for um, husband, wife, and kids. So just a, just a plug, but start, start small, um, and, and don't, don't get uh, legalistic about it. The, the, whole, the whole goal is, is to... Is to um, change your taste buds so that you have a greater desire for um, God's wisdom and God's word rather than the wisdom and word of the world. The happy life of the righteous flows from a life that is saturated in the word of God, not the word of man. How do we know what we're saturated with? When you're poked, what comes out? Do you, is, it, is, is it truth? Or is it maybe frustration and anger because of things you're hearing in the world. In verse 3 and 4, the psalmist gives us an illustration or a picture of the righteous and a picture or illustration of the wicked. First, he gives a picture of the righteous. He, the righteous man, is the, the, the happy righteous man or woman, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all it does, he prospers. This is a tree that is, uh, four things have happened to this tree. It's been replanted. It bears fruit. It won't die, and it's prospering. It's been replanted. It bears fruit. It won't die, and it prospers. The underlying Hebrew word for planted here is super important. I got giddy when I saw it. It means replanted. That he is like a tree replanted by streams of water. The righteous are replanted by streams of water. We've been uprooted from our old ways, our old life, and we've been replanted. Not just replanted in another hole in the same um, wasteland, desert, but by streams of living water. Jeremiah 17:5-8 contrasts the unplanted man with the replanted man. The unplanted man who trusts in the way of the world and the replanted man or woman who trusts in the Lord. First, the unplanted man, verse 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert. How do shrubs do in the desert? Whose heart 
and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Here's the good news. If you, if, if you know Jesus Christ, you, you are no longer in that place. But we can go back to that place. We're, we're righteous. We're, we're always righteous. We've always been replanted, but we can, we can live like that shrub in the desert. But here's the truth for the replanted man, verse 7 and 8. Blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water, replanted by water, that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit, even in drought, even in trial, because he's by living water that never runs dry. The righteous man, like the replanted tree, is able to transcend natural circumstances and trials, not because of his natural or inherent abilities, but because he was supernaturally replanted by living water, the very water that brings life, that brought life, and sustains life. It never runs dry. I love this, this account of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. This woman was a serial adulteress. And she was going to the well. If you've seen The Chosen at all, they do a great job of capturing this particular story. And she goes to the well um, and during the hottest part of day because none of the other ladies, none of the other people want to be with her. And Jesus is a Jew. The Jews don't have a good relationship with the Samaritans, so she's considered wicked on several accounts. She's wicked because she's a Samaritan, and she's seen as wicked because she's an adulteress. So Jesus meets her at the well. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the water that she's drawing out of the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And these are two contrasting pictures. The well is a picture of the water of this world that ultimately just brings uh, misery. And the water that Jesus is saying to drink of is the water of his word. And, and he, in fact, is the living word of God. He is the word incarnate. Next, we're told to that, that this tree that is replanted by living water, by streams of water, yields fruit in season. This once dying tree replanted by living water yields fruit in season. Notice it doesn't always yield fruit. But it will bear fruit because it has been replanted by streams of water. It says next that the leaf doesn't wither. This tree won't die. There's nothing that can separate us from God. That Jesus conquered the final enemy, death. And that this tree replanted by living water prospers in all he does. The righteous, undying, fruit-bearing man will prosper. But this doesn't mean that this man who delights in the Word and meditates on it day and night will be healthy and wealthy. You get that? The psalmist is not giving us a recipe or a promise for material prosperity or a trial-free life. That is the counsel of the wicked. It's the, it's the gospel of health and wealth from hell. From hell. 
Many who are wicked do in fact prosper in a, in a worldly sense. Living long lives are healthy and successful. Do you know people like that? Do you know the righteous people like Job that have done everything right, who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and God in His providence has allowed um, horrific calamity on their life? And do you know wicked people who deny the name of Jesus Christ, who have lived long lives, they're healthy, and they're wealthy? That's not what he's talking about here when he talks about prosperity. Even though the wicked do in fact prosper in a worldly sense, many live in long, healthy, and successful lives, they will never be fully and finally happy without being replanted. Nancy and I enjoy walking, watching documentaries on famous people. And they're so stinking sad. I don't know why we keep watching them. But these are people that were famous musicians, famous movie stars, famous athletes, had everything. At the end of their life, it's either a documentary on they've already died and they're interviewing family members, or it's at the end of their life, they're being interviewed. And every one of them was looking for something. They were. They were looking for happiness. They were looking for happiness in everything the world offered. And they had everything the world offered. And it came up empty. Here's a picture of prosperity, this replanted tree by living waters. Imagine a lush, fruit-bearing tree. Maybe you're picturing a banana tree, an orange tree, pear, apple, late summer. Who benefits from the fruit? Is it a tree? It's other people. The righteous prosper in a biblical sense when we stretch our roots to drink from the living water so that God who replanted us can bear fruit in us, not for us, in us for the glory of God and for the good of other people. That's Biblical prospering. As we submit to God in His Word, He produces fruit in us that brings prosperity to other people. The prosperous fruit that is produced in the happy, righteous person is loving others and thinking of them as more important than ourselves. You know who this includes? The wicked, who we're not supposed to sit, stand, or walk with. It's loving them. It's loving them and serving them. It's not joining them or belonging to them, but it's having relationships with them. And then getting to the point in that relationship where you can, where you can uh, talk about uh, your testimony, how when you were once um, a dead bush in the desert, God replanted you by streams of living water. To have conversations with them, to, to, to not call their sin out as greater than yours, but to say, yes, I'm a sinner like you, and God in his providence has saved me, and you need that same salvation. And the way that you find that salvation, the way that you replant it is by God's grace, but his methodology is for you to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and repent. A stable, rooted, fruitful, and prosperous life is lived for the glory of God and the good of others. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. They're not like a tree planted by living water, 
but are like chaff. Last night we had a debate. There's about 30 people here, and we're talking, is it chaff or chafe? And we, we, we agreed that chaff was a noun and chafe was a verb. Chaff is something that comes in the field. Chafing comes from riding bikes, I guess. That's what they said last night. The picture here, the picture here is, is uh, the, uh, the threshing floor during harvest time. In that day, wheat was separated from the chaff by a process called winnowing, W-I-N-N-O-W-I-N-G. The farmer would first crush the heads of the wheat to separate the kernel from the husk. He would then shake a winnowing fork back and forth while allowing the wind to blow the chaff as the heavy kernels fell back to the ground. The chaff was worthless and blew away. Uh, the grain had great value. Today you might see a combine moving through a field. and You might see uh, plumes of dust and, um, and this chaff um, blowing in the open field behind it. Instead of a deeply rooted tree, the wicked, is a, the wicked are a hollow shell that don't produce lasting fruit. It has no roots to hold him steady and reach the water. He will eventually be blown away by the wind, and ultimately a final judgment is coming. John the Baptist talked about this in Matthew 3, verse 12. He was talking about the final judgment. We, you know, we live in a time of grace right now. There is no judgment. There is consequences for sin. But it's a time that the door to the ark is open to anybody that might believe and enter. But there's a day coming that John the Baptist foretold. He said this, his winnowing fork, God's winnowing fork is in his hand, it will be in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chafe, chaff, excuse me, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So while the righteous are stable and rooted, the wicked are directionless and unrooted. While the righteous are well watered, the wicked are dried out. While the righteous are bearing fruit, the wicked produce nothing that is lasting. While the righteous are prosperous for others, the wicked are prosperous for themselves. While the righteous are living, the wicked are the walking dead. The wicked may in fact even enjoy a healthy, wealthy, and semi-healthy, happy life. But eventually, but eventually, if they're not replanted, they will wither and blow away like chaff. So after the picture of this, of this fruitful life and this worthless life, the psalmist ends with a therefore, which is his final summary to Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows of the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked don't have a happy future. Even though they may appear to be happy and prosperous, they will not have a happy future unless they're replanted. They will not be able to stand in judgment, and they will not enter into the congregation of the righteous, which is the everlasting presence of the Lord. They will be judged as wicked, uh, uh, wicked chaff or goats, and they'll be cast down and out away from the Lord forever. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He doesn't just know our way, he's paved our way. He watches over our path. He keeps on knowing the way of the righteous. He knows all of your needs, if you know Jesus Christ. He knows your fears, your desires. He even knows your failures. 
He cares for every intimate detail of your journey. He sees you, he hears you, and he will ultimately rescue you from this broken, sin-soaked world. He loves you the same on your worst day as he does on your best day. But the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked are on the world's wide road that leads to destruction. The wicked describes anyone and everyone who is not trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And if you are here today, I plead with you, the only hope is not to try more. The only hope is not to, to whatever, whatever um, lies you're believing, wherever you're trying to find happiness. It's not just cutting those things out. Your only hope is not to produce, a better, produce better fruit. Your only hope is to be replanted. All your righteous deeds will one day prove empty and you'll be blown away with them forever. You can't replant yourself by doing better. You can't rescue yourself from coming judgment. But Jesus can. Repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. For the righteous sinner, for those of us that have been replanted, um, praise be to God, by streams of living water, Take heart because the good shepherd knows you by name. He sees your situation. He hears your cries for help and he cares. Your withering life has been uprooted and replanted near living water that will never grow dry. You are secure. And you can rest in the reality that whatever he brings to you, he will bring you through. Brothers and sisters, our goal in this life is not simply to survive. I know sometimes it feels like that, just white-knuckling it, hanging on for dear life. You will survive because the master gardener has replanted you in good soil by living water that will never go dry. The call is to thrive by living a happy and contented life that is rooted in the truth of God's Word, not in the systems of the world. It's a call to believers, to the redeemed, to stand and thrive where we've been replanted and not go back and stand in the hole that we've been uprooted from. This happiness comes by, by spreading our roots into the living water the living water of God's Word, where the incarnate Word is found, where we can know more of His character, know more of His ways, understand more of who He sees us as, as His beloved. And we can know that He will supply our every need in Christ Jesus. And we spread our, our roots, we're going to have a greater desire to be with Him and to, to spend time with Him in His Word. And we're going to Think about Him day and night. That's where true happiness is found. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, God, that I just, I just even think about the Psalms that were written over 900 years, that, that they, all they had was the Torah, the first five books, which were, which were all they needed. But they didn't have Your teaching and Your instruction in three different Bibles in the house and on their phone and on their tablet and on their computer. God, we have access. Maybe we're just overly familiar. 
Um, we take it for, for granted. So I pray, God, would you, would you increase, would you give us a, a new desire, not for the sake of receiving anything, but God, would you um, give us a new desire, a deeper desire to, um, to dip our roots deeper into living waters. And God, would you give us a greater desire to live, to, to trust you, and to obey you in response to who you are and what you've done, not to gain anything. We love you. We thank you for your patience and your long-suffering with us. God, we thank you that you love us the same on our worst day as you do on our best. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.